Good. Well, um, I'm just going to swap my glasses over, and I'm here then to uh, continue this morning going through uh, the Gospel of Mark. I hope you're really enjoying Mark. I'm, um, I'm definitely, um, you know, feel like I'm really in touch with um, Jesus in Galilee at the start of that ministry, um, maybe um, a year or so really up there in Galilee, and um, the excitement that comes from the beginning of, of his ministry, and um, I don't know, you can, you can, you can hear uh, Mark's excitement as he is recording these things and writing this stuff down, um, often I think checking with Peter and hearing firsthand from Peter um, what's been going on and um, enjoying recording those things with us. So that's where we're going this morning. Um, and to take you there, I'd like to encourage you to just close your eyes and use your imagination and come with me now. So it's a pleasant spring morning bathed in Mediterranean sunshine the air is clear and fresh, and you're sitting comfortably on a soft, grassy slope that reaches down to a sandy beach on the edge of that great freshwater lake in Galilee. The water is mirror calm, reflecting the blue sky. There's a cooling breeze blowing gently from the water towards you, you're part of a vast crowd. Hundreds, maybe even thousands of people have gathered and they're all sat down and they're all whispering in hushed tones, waiting, expectant. A couple of rowing boats are being put into the water and you can hear the soft splash in the water of the oars as they pull out a few yards from the shore and come fully into your view. Over to your right, further around the shoreline, your attention is drawn for a moment to the sight of a recently ploughed field and the clearly visible figure of a man walking the furrows, sowing his seed. Every few steps, he puts his hand into the leather bag strapped around him and draws out a generous handful, and with a skillful sweep of his arm, an arc of seed is momentarily launched into the air before it scatters evenly upon the field. The crowd falls silent, as in one of the boats, a man stands up, steadies himself for a moment to address the crowd, and with a brief gesture towards the field... He begins to speak. Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road. And the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil, and after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, 
and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so this then is the parable of the sower. Now, in the Greek, uh, when you read it, it's clearly set in brackets because it begins with Jesus saying, listen up, listen to this, hear this. And it ends with him saying the same thing. He who has ears, let him listen, let him hear. It's the same word. Now, we have this bit that follows on now. Um, Verse 10. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be saved. So we've got here an explanation. This is the first kind of parable that, that, that um, there's a whole chapter full of them here, parables that, that Mark you know, records. There have been a few earlier parables, um, but this is the first kind of proper story, and it's the first time we, as it were, as the readers, are taken to the shore at Galilee, and you know, we and we listen to the parables. And so the question arises: Why parables? And that's what the disciples are asking: Why parables? Because there's no explanation that follows for the crowd, and so you know they're left to listen and ponder. First of all, we see that this is about the mysteries of the kingdom of God. So we know that these parables are about the kingdom of God. And it's about the way things work in the kingdom. It's about the way God does things. It's about the way things get to happen in the kingdom of God. So for us, as Christians, it's really important that we understand how God does things. What are his ways? How does he go about doing things? We find that understanding spiritual truth is given, it's imparted, it comes through revelation. He says, to you is given the mystery of the kingdom of God. It isn't something that's gained by intellectual pursuit or by academic ability or prowess. You do not need an ology to understand this stuff, to perceive this stuff. In fact, ologies tend to get in the way. Now, let me ask you a question. How often have you listened to a sermon or read a passage in your Bible and you've caught a glimpse of something, something bigger, and you feel that there is something there for you to understand, something that would change you, something that you need to know, uh, but, you know... The kids need picking up from school or there's a thousand and one other things and suddenly the moment's gone and 
and you find you can't get back to it later. There was a moment where if you could have just lingered and pursued a little bit more, there was something there, but oh, moment's gone. Have you ever felt that? Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, it's right. That's right, yeah. Now, look, I want you to understand. Jesus wants you to understand. He wanted his disciples to understand the way of God. Always the way of God is to draw you in. He's always wanting to draw you closer. He wants you to pursue him. He wants you to seek him. Because what he wants always is relationship. He wants you to know him and not be an expert about him. You might know a great deal about, I don't know, President Obama. You might have read his biographies, studied his life. But if you've never met him, and if he doesn't know you, then there's no relationship there. And sometimes, you know, we can get academic about our knowledge of God. We know the theology. We might, you know, we've read this paper, that paper, whatever. But it's relationship that God's really after. He wants you to know him. So he will draw you. Always there's that sense of linger on and know more and come closer. Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, of course, gives us that ask, seek, knock um, triplet, doesn't it? You know, ask. And, you know, you'll find the answer. Seek, you will find. Knock, the door will be open to you. There's that sense of come on. And, uh, you know, in the Greek, that's, that's the present continuous. So it's ask and be asking. Keep asking. Be a seeker. Keep seeking. Let that be your disposition. Be someone who's always knocking, always wanting to know more, always wanting to go further. Be that kind of person. And... And you'll do well in the kingdom of God because these things open up to you. And that is why the, the clever, the self-dependent, the proud, we've seen it here in terms of the scribes we, and the teachers of the law that come up from Jerusalem. They come up from Jerusalem. They see Jesus doing these miracles. They see the demons fleeing. And what do they do? They've got to come up with an explanation and they say, it's by Beelzebub that he's casting out demons. It's like, none of the others believe that. They can't see that. But they've come up with this because in their pride, um, they just can't see it. They don't find God. Whilst the ordinary, uneducated men and women of Galilee, the crowds around him so easily know him and so easily love him with just that pure devotion. There's that bit in Acts, isn't there, where um, they, the disciples are brought before the Sanhedrin. And it says, and they perceived that they were uneducated and unlearned men, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's what made the difference. They'd been with him. They, Jesus had rubbed off on them. And that's what made the difference. So that is the way that God would have it. He allows himself to be found by those who seek him with a full and contrite heart, and yet he remains hidden to those who 
and we've all met people like this, in their pride, they demand that the almighty God, their creator, the creator of heaven and earth, their creator, the one who grants them their every breath, their demand is that he should make himself known to them and should prove to their satisfaction, to the satisfaction of their intellect, that he exists and that he is good and, you know, ultimately that he is to be served and worshipped. And, you know, our God just doesn't do that. He doesn't go down those roads. So, so let's have a look at the explanation then. Because here's the little paradox, you know, Jesus says, these things have been revealed to you, but they're hidden to the rest. And yet here, <laughs> you know, for 2,000 years, in every language and in every place, the answer actually has been written down in Mark chapter 4 for anybody who wants to know. So let's have a look at this. And he gives the explanation. I'll read it through from verse 13. Do you not understand this parable? How will you not understand all the parables? So Jesus is saying this parable is a key. If you can understand this parable, then you'll understand the rest. If you don't get this parable, the rest will just be nonsense to you as well. The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are by the side of the road where the word is sown. And when they hear immediately, Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. So the two key elements in this parable is the seed and the soil. The seed and the soil. And the parable is all about the interaction between those two. Now the seed is the word of God. The seed is consistent. Its properties and characteristics, its potential doesn't change. Doesn't, the seed is the constant thing. And the seed is sown generously and widely available. The word of God is widely available to all who want it. And there's nothing, there's no scarcity, there's no um, conserving on behalf of the sower. God isn't uh, worried about um, his word being heard by people that won't receive it. Or won't, he, would, you know, he would gladly spread that word. So there's a generosity of that. And also we know, don't we, that the seed is inherently fruitful. Within that seed is the transforming potential. It has 
the potential to yield fruit, to yield 30, 60, 100 fold. That's inherent in the seed. The issue really is the human heart and the soil is the human heart. Now we can readily uh, see this parable in terms of um, the evangelist being the sower. So he sows the gospel. It's the evangelist proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and the different hearts being the way that that message is received. And I'm sure that we've all experienced those different responses. So that is also one great way of looking at it. But I want to just say to you, it's a little bit wider than that because it's also about anybody that is sowing the seed. So that could be your Sunday morning preacher. That could be a book that you're reading. That could be a friend who's sharing the word of God with you. It's also about you, know, you and I and our hearts and how we respond every day to the word of God. Because in the end, that's the way the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God works because his word is in our heart and it's how we respond to that. that that's, that's the economy of the kingdom that you're now part of. And then we've got these four types of heart, haven't we? We've got hard hearts, we've got shallow hearts, we've got distracted hearts, and we've got good hearts. And let's think, what makes them like that? What makes a heart like that? And how can it be changed? How can you go from a hard heart to a good heart? So hard hearts, well, this is the path. I mean, this is literally, these people have been trodden on. That's why that soil is hard. It's been trodden on. So for people, it's people that have been trodden on, people that have been crushed, people that have been compressed by the circumstances of life. And it's also about folk whose hearts have become callous. They've hardened over to be a protection, to reduce pain. People that have been hurt um, and that have been damaged through the, through life, through this world. People that have been sinned against and also those that keep on sinning. We're told in, the, you know, in um, Paul's letters, you know, um, sin hardens our heart. If we continue in sin, our hearts harden over. It becomes harder for us to respond to the Spirit of God in our lives. We become more rigid Cynicism, people being cynical, people being unwilling to change. Ruth was just talking to me about people, just, they don't want to listen. They don't want the implications. They don't want to change. Yeah, whatever, whatever. I can remember, um, I can remember being part of a, a, a thing in um, Bournemouth, an outreach that was going on in Bournemouth, through Citygate in Bournemouth. And just walking up to a guy who was sat there on a, on a bench, you know, this is in the shopping area, and he just put up his hand like that and turned away and just said, no, no, no. And I, I said to him, you, what do you, you don't even know what you're saying no to. He was just like, no, I don't want to know. I don't want to hear what you have to say. And, and, and got up and walked away. And you just kind of feel like, oh, but 
but you know, you don't know. You don't, you say no to the good news. But it's just like, forget it, don't want to know. So how are hearts like that softened? How do we soften the hard hearts of those around us, of the unbelievers around us? And maybe how do we soften our own hearts as well? Well, you know what? Simple things like kindness, like love, like showing people mercy, forgiveness, that really softens people's hearts. Helping people when they're unable to ask for help and just seeing what they need and helping them. Bringing hope, bringing light. And you know, another thing that softens heart is seeing that happening to somebody else. So you don't necessarily have to be on the receiving end of that mercy, but you see that mercy being given and shown to somebody else, and that can soften your heart as well. I remember when, um, remember a situation I had at work with a, a colleague who, um, I don't know, he just took umbrage and, you know, enjoyed winding me up. Used to um, nick my coffee cup at work and hide it away and, I don't know, things like that, you know, silly things like that. Um, and um, there was a, an incident in, um, in the garage with one of the, the, the limousines um, and um, it had been damaged, uh, been knocked and damaged, um, and, um, and he was saying that I had done it. And I was the last person, you know, I was the last person to have arrived back and parked, that vehicle, parked the other vehicle next to it, you see. So it did seem like it was like me, but I was like, I'm pretty sure I never did. I'm pretty sure I didn't. So, of course, they had CCTV. So they played back the CCTV um, in the garage. Um, and, um, you know, they're going through it at quite high speed. So here I come, that's me parking. Let's slow the CCTV down. No, he parks it okay, gets out, walks away. Oh, five minutes later, in comes the next car. <laughs> and the next car is my colleague. And as he's parking the car, whoa, suddenly it's all very plain. And the other car that's got damaged suddenly rocks like that. And you can see it all on the... So all my colleagues were all looking at this little screen. And everybody goes, whoa, you know. And it was obviously, it was obviously Nick. And, you know, and he, you know, he was basically he'd be caught out, and he, you know, being caught out trying to blame me, you know. And then just, I don't know, a few minutes later that day, it just so happened that we were both in the garage. There was nobody else around. We were both in the garage. Um, you know, didn't plan it, just kind of happened. We're both in there. And, um, and I think, you know, he looked at me and he honestly expected, you know, a tirade of abuse from me. And, you know, that's what he was expecting and looking for. And I just patted him on the shoulder and laughed at him and said, ah, it gives the rest of them something to talk about, doesn't it? And, you know, and forgave him, really. He didn't say, I forgive you. But, you know, my approach was, don't worry about it, let it go. And he was so, you could just see his disposition change completely. And after that, well, you know, he was my best mate, couldn't do enough for me. So, so it changes people, just being normal and kind and godly and happy that softens people's hearts and what we do with you know the cap course and little bards and uh, younger for longer things like that what we do with those things they we create those opportunities for that kindness and that love 
to impact people and to help people. And that is about softening people's hearts. And it's not only those delegates on the course whose hearts are being softened, but it's those around that hear about what's going on and what we're doing. That softens hearts. As for you and I, repentance, the washing of uh, regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit, you know, just being sorry, just being humble, um, Beware, I say this to you, beware of bitterness and unforgiveness. Do not hold unforgiveness in your hearts against anybody, Christians or non-Christians. Don't be like that. Don't be bitter against people. That really hardens heart. That acid just hardens the heart and will rob the life of God out of you. So don't be like that. I just want to say very clearly just so we're really clear, because some people are not clear about when we, talk about unforg- when we talk about forgiving people, those that have sinned against us, those that have sinned against us, forgiveness is not incompatible with pursuing criminal justice, okay? So if you've been wronged against, and you know we're talking some serious criminal action, it is okay for you to pursue a course of criminal justice. That's not incompatible with forgiveness, okay? So don't let somebody say to you, well, you know, if you've forgiven them, then you just let it go. That's not the case. And indeed, if you take the other side of the coin, pursuing them to criminal justice and achieving that, you still have to forgive them, okay? You still have to forgive them. I just want to be clear about that. Don't say to anybody else, you know, if, you know, you've got to forgive them and forget it and act as if nothing happened. You know, there are consequences. If people sin against you, they should receive those consequences. So, yeah, I think you understand what I'm saying. Right. Okay. Shallow hearts. I'm sure that we've all met people. I can think of my, my neighbor, well, uh, yeah, my neighbor, the husband anyway, who um, his wife got saved. And then he got saved, and it was wonderful, and it was marvelous, and he was singing. He was a big chap, and he was singing and rejoicing and clapping his hands, and, you know, the center of quite a bit of attention. She was a much quieter woman, and, <laughs> you know. Um, all seemed wonderful. All seemed great. But, you know, a couple of months in, he started not being able to get along on a Sunday, couldn't make the home groups. You started to realise he's not, there's nothing going on between the meetings. It's just at the meetings where all the attention is. And when it comes down, we started talking about, you know, disciplining yourself, you know, getting a Bible study, getting some daily devotions, you know, here, here's a, here's a study in God's word, have a read through this, that'll help you, you know. Anything like that, suddenly there wasn't time for it. And within a couple of months, he was just long gone. He withered away, just exactly as this parable says. He sprung up, it was all wonderful, and then whenever any effort was actually required on his part, any change required on his part, he withered away and gone. People like that are impulsive. Um, It tends to be mostly an emotional response to the gospel. There isn't really that counting of the cost. There isn't really that consideration. There isn't really that understanding of 
okay, if I'm going to do this, these are the things that I've got to give up. These are the things that I've got to change. Uh, these are the relationships that need to change. Here is a price I'm going to have to pay. And, you know, Jesus encourages people to count the costs. There are other parables where he's clearly encouraging people to consider beforehand what it is to follow him. And then basically he says you've got to give everything up. If you can't give everything up, then you can't be my disciple. So it's a very high bar. Um, But he says count the cost. So these people haven't counted the cost. And really, basically, they're self-centered. Shallow people are self-centered people. And they're really just in it for fun. They're interested in leisure. They're interested in light-heartedness. And if it's not fun for me anymore, well, I'm not going to bother with that anymore. And people can be like that with their relationships as well. Oh, it's not, there's nothing in it for me anymore. I'm out of here. I'm gone. It's not fun anymore. They want a carefree existence. And so their hearts are shallow. Now, to deepen hearts like that, let me say to you, serve. If you want to deepen your heart, serve. Serve one another. Serve in the church. Take on responsibility. Take on responsibility in your family. Take on responsibility in your workplace. Be a conscientious worker. Do well. Learn to persevere on these things. Learn to be steadfast and reliable and consistent. Don't just be seeking fun and joy. You know, I find it um, increasingly shocking that when people first start work, they'll want to start work and they'll, they'll have their mobile phones and, you know, they'll be wanting still to run their social life and interact with all of their friends you know, and perhaps be playing their video game and, I don't know, selling their stuff on eBay and, you know, all, all the rest of it and playing bingo, you know, whatever. They want to be doing all of that while they're at work. And there seems to be that kind of fundamental misunderstanding that, no, 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 when you're at work, your employer has bought you. You belong to them for that period of time. And you, you know, and it, it, even, even things like... Um, People being given basic instructions. Can you please take that rubbish and put it out in the bins outside? Oh, I don't want to do that. There's not, there's not a, I don't want to do about it. That's the job. That's what you've got to do. Oh, it's not fun, so I'm not interested. We, you know, we've got to be, you know, there's some depth. And that's where that depth comes from. Serving, being faithful, being conscientious, being accountable to other people. That's where that depth comes from. Um, so, um, so we have to help folk. <laughs> um, we should expect folk to be coming in with shallow hearts, and we have to help folk to, um, you know, get some discipline in their lives, really, and get some depth in their lives, and learn to live out this Christian life week in, week out. Get on with it on Monday and on Tuesday, and on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. You know, so that's shallow hearts going to deeper hearts, distracted hearts. We've got three clear things here that Jesus says. The cares of this world. 
the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things. There's the three things that will choke the word of God in us and make us unfruitful. The cares of the world. You know, I, 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 am, I love the news. I'm a bit of a, you know, I want to hear the news. But I have to be careful because I can find that I'm taking more in from the news uh, you know, than I am from, from anywhere else, from the word of God or my prayer life or whatever. And, and I'm just, you know, my head space is caught up with all the worries of the world and the troubles. And I'm thinking about, oh, you know, I don't know, just anything. You can worry about it. There's so much out there to worry about. And at six o'clock every night, you can get a whole new download of stuff to worry about. I'm just saying, be careful. Look at yourself. Am I being anxious? Am I picking up? that anxiety and that worry that is so much in the world around us today? Or am I trusting in God? See, that's where those worries are disappeared. When, you, when you're trusting in God, and you think, well, actually, I don't know what my energy bill is going to be. I'm going to do what I can to reduce that energy bill and be sensible. But in the end, I have a heavenly Father who loves me and who provides for me and who is well able to get my bill paid for me. You know, so, so do what you can to reduce that bill, but don't worry about it. Don't let it be a stress and a drain on you. Bring it to your Heavenly Father and trust in Him. And that's for all things in life. You know, family. Family can be a worry. Family can be a strain and a stress um, you know, you can't control those people. You don't own those people. You can't control them. And you know what? You're not actually responsible. <laughs> so, you know, bring those things to your Heavenly Father. Seek to be a blessing. Seek to be a cause of light and love when you can. But otherwise, you know, don't let those things press down on you. And don't let people pull levers in you that get you running off to do this, that, and the other. And then, you know, you're exhausted and your life with God is going down the tubes. Career. Again, something, you know, easily we can get anxious about. I've got to do well. I've got to press on. I've got to achieve these results. I've got to do better than my colleagues. Otherwise, you know, it'll be me out the door and I, it needs to be them out the door. So I've got to compete with them and do better with them. You know, let the grace of God be in all of that and, you know, let him sort out your, your work and your income and stuff, you know, and, and you know, he'll grant you favour at work and you'll, you'll prosper and rise. And you know what? He'll move you on as well. When there's too much stress and trouble, you know, other doors will open and you move. So trust your career to him. He's got you in these things. Deceitfulness of riches. Well, that's all about the illusion, I think, of self-sufficiency. The idea that, oh, I'm okay. I don't, you might not actually voice it, but I don't really need God. It's, it's all right. I've got enough now. I'm okay. I'm, you know, it's going to be, you know, I'll tell you, if you start thinking that way, then, you know, your riches will, you know, get, it says in Proverbs, they will grow wings and fly away. <laughs> That's what riches are like, you know. They'll be there one minute and then, boom, they're gone the next. So again, it's cultivating that sense of believing and trusting in your Heavenly Father. Thank Him 
If you've got provision, thank him for it. Excellent. How can I be a blessing to others? How can I be generous? How can I be, now that I have more, can I be more generous? Looking around, things like that, you know? And be like Paul. He's content when he doesn't have much, and he's content when he has plenty. You've got to be the same. Deal with the ups and the downs. The desire for other things. Wanting other possessions, the material things of this world. Wanting other relationships. Wanting other experiences. You know, watching the advertising or the films or whatever and thinking, oh, if only my life was like that things would be better. And that it create, you know, those of the advertisers intend to, it's their purpose to create that desire in you. They want you to be dissatisfied with what you have and they want to tell you that if you get what they're selling, you'll be happy, you know. It's the same. All the adverts are like that. So, you know, let's be wise about those things and just not allow, and let, let, Let's let the Holy Spirit bring that contentment into our lives and that peace into our lives and that satisfaction with what we've got. And you can genuinely, generally, gen, genuinely, you can genuinely look at other people and think, well, God bless them with what they've got. But I don't crave those things. I'm content with what I've got. And that contentment is worth more than you know, anything else that you could ever gain. So be content. How do we remove those weeds? Well, repentance and faith. And once again, it's the washing of the water of the word. It's discipleship. It's recognizing these are dangers that creep in. I don't want to be choked. I want to be fruitful. Weeding these things out. Asking other people, hey, can you help me get these weeds out? Do a bit of weeding. Pray, Lord Jesus, bring these weeds out of me. You know, change, you know, he's able to change you. Right, other lessons, a few other lessons from this parable. First of all, good soil can be improved. If you're bringing a 30-fold result, well done, excellent, terrific. You know what? That could go to 60 or 100, you know? There's that sense of always being, always growing in the Lord, always moving forward, always getting better. You can be a better Christian, okay? I'm going to put that in inverted commas. I don't want you to run away with that in the wrong way, but you can improve your walk with God. You can improve your fruitfulness. You can grow in faith and knowledge. If you want to know how, 2 Peter 1, 5 to 11, gives you a very good list to start with, okay? 2 Peter 1, 5 to 11, look it up afterwards. Get weaving with that this week, all right? And you'll do very well. Tick off one of them this week, you'll do very well. Okay, yeah, so don't think I've got it, I've arrived, I'm there now. Always be looking for ways to be more fruitful. The best is yet to come. And again, that's always the way it is in the kingdom of God, isn't it? It's wonderful what we've got now, but there's always that promise of the best is still to come. The best is still to come. Another thing to learn, Satan, he's actually named here. Jesus doesn't name him much. Satan is Satan opposes the word. He does not want the word of God in your heart. He will remove that word if he gets the slightest opportunity. So don't give him the opportunity. And recognize that with other people when you're sharing the gospel with them. Don't be surprised if you know, you've shared the gospel with them one week. Next week, they're completely oblivious to it. They've forgotten all about it. And you 
back to square one again, back to square one again. That's, you know, Satan is opposing the word. He will frustrate clear gospel evangelism. He will confuse it. He will muddle it. He will call it into disrepute. And he will snatch the word away from our hearts if we get half a chance. Okay, one other thing here to pick up. The kingdom of God is essentially organic rather than mechanistic. Now, hear me here. I can't really, honestly, in all integrity, say, look, all Jesus' parables are about agricultural um, issues, you know, um, because, because how could he stand there and say, the kingdom of God is like people that work in a factory doing this, that, and the other, you know. Yeah, he's preaching in a pre-industrial agricultural age. Of course there aren't any parables about factories or computer malfunctions or whatever. We can make those up ourselves. But there is something to understand here, I think, about, um, about understanding seasons. The Bible talks a lot, and, and Jesus, and, and you know, the, 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 in the Gospels as well, talks a lot, in the epistles as well, talks a lot about seasons. There are times and there are seasons for things. Now, in this industrial, uh, you know, mechanized world that we live in, the machines are always the same. They, you know, they don't get tired. They don't have good seasons and bad seasons, feeling high, feeling low. They don't even know the difference between day and night. They just function, don't they? And there is, you know, you try and, try and sort of open your ears to it, but the way that um, it's very easy for us to receive valuation um, on the basis of our efficiency, our productivity, how, how, you know, how good we are, what are our outcomes. People talk about outcomes and things like that, you know. So it, it's easy for us to kind of talk about Think of ourselves that way and talk about one another that way. And you won't find, you know, you won't find your human resource officer talking about what season of life are you in and, you know, let's, um, when, when, when we're doing your um, appraisal, you know, we'll, um, we'll modify what our expectations are because, you know, you're in this season or that season. I would just say the kingdom of God's not like that, okay? So in terms of our expectations of one another... Let's not have a consistently high demand of one another in terms of productivity and output. Um, think more in terms of seasons. So there's a season for sowing and there's a season for growth and development and there's a season for harvest and fruitfulness that comes and then there are dormant seasons. There are seasons for pruning back and cutting down and resting the soil so that that fruitfulness can come again. And, you know, that's how it is for us. That's how it is in our lives, in our walks with God. That's also how it is in terms of church life as well. And I would say, you know, we're, we're very clear at the moment about the season we're in. We've, we've receive that in terms of prophetic input the churches so that's you know that's that's you know the different congregations and we're including verwood in this as well 
We're in a season. It's listed there. It's a season that the early church went through. Uh, there in um, Acts 9, verse 31. It's a season of peace. So for me, that says um, season, the season of uh, controversy and, and competition and people rubbing against one another and sparks flying, that season's passed. Now we're in a season of peace where people are getting on with one another and there's some harmony and there's some grace and forbearance amongst one another. Amongst one another. Season of peace is a season of being built up. Go ahead and find that verse, Acts 9.31. The church was built up. This is a season to be built up and encouraged for you know, strength to come in us, for capacity to increase in us. Expect those things. Jill was telling me just earlier on how you know, she's, fine, she's reading, reading the Bible and finding different applications, different, different things that are coming to her, like the verse that you read this morning. You know, we should expect those things. Let's be different. Let's see that kind of growth, that, that, that change, that expansion in capacity. It's a season where we have the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That intrigues me. I'm really seeking <laughs> and I'm curious about what is that like then, the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit? They, they seem to um, be two, two sides of something, don't they? I would expect uh, a sense of the, the presence of God amongst us when we gather together in our worship, when we gather together in our prayer. I would expect there to be miracles and signs and wonders amongst us. That's something that says to me, that speaks to me about the fear of God. You know, a greater sense of holiness, walking with God in holiness, a, you know, a lower tolerance for for sin in our lives and a greater sense of, boy, this stuff's serious and important. And the comfort of the Holy Spirit, what is that, what's that like then for a church to be comforted by the Spirit? What does that feel like? The Spirit is, of course, our comforter. That's what Jesus says. He'll send the comforter. So a greater, a greater awareness, certainly a greater presence, greater action of the Spirit of God amongst us. But maybe for us individually, that reassurance that we are loved, that we belong, that we are chosen, that we are saved. That reassurance, walking in those things. Less of the, am I really good enough for God? That kind of, you know, those anxieties that creep in. And it says at the end of that passage that the church increased in number. So let's be expecting growth across all of our congregations. Let's be expecting new people coming in. That's the season that we're in. I, I would say that's the season we're in for this year. You know, I wouldn't, want to, I, wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to call an end to it, but I'd say that's certainly a word for this year. That's what we should be looking for. So understand the season that you're in because the kingdom of God is organic rather than mechanistic. And let's be gentle with one another. When we see one another in different seasons of life, let's be... Uh, let's modify our expectations and look to support people to embrace what they should be doing in that season. Good. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to invite the worship group back up, please. And I'm going to say to us, look, you know, you would have heard a variety of different things from this passage this morning. What is it that the Holy Spirit has said to you?
What is it that the Spirit of God has been pointing out to you? And as we worship, there's no greater occasion, there's no greater opportunity to do business with God, to, to pray, to repent, to ask, to seek, to find, to respond to this word so that it's not snatched away and you, you know, by the time you get through your midday meal and into the afternoon, it's gone. How many times do we do that? Oh, it's a wonderful preach. I can't remember a thing he said. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's just take a little bit of time to say, Lord, put that word in my heart. Help me to remember these things. Let's pray through some of those things. Um, and if you, need, if you need prayer, if you want to, you know, if you want other people to help you, you know, then, you know, obviously you've got, you know, your loving family and friends around you. You can come up and speak to Jim and myself as well. Um, and let's enjoy the worship. Let's interact with God. Let's expect words of prophecy, words of knowledge, words of encouragement for one another. Um, and let's just um, love God with a pure and devoted heart. Thank you.